You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. It doesn't mean I don't care anymore. I don't want to let you down, honest, but just doesn't hurt so bad anymore. You can understand that, can't you? Look, I can give money to the city. They can hire more cops. Let someone else take the risk. It's different now. Please. I need it to be different now. I know I made a promise, but I didn't see this coming. I didn't count on being happy. Please, tell me that it's okay. Maybe they already have. Maybe they sent me. Welcome, everybody, to a special supplemental episode of the 602 Club. I am your host here, Matthew Rushing, and I'm very excited to be here to talk tonight or today or whenever you're listening to this about Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which has just recently been released on a Blu-ray, completely remastered, looks fantastic in HD, and I needed a good friend to help me talk about this one, and I could think of no one better than the man, the myth, the legend himself, John Mills. That that speaks volumes not about me, but about you, Matt. I'm, I'm sure you could have found somebody better, but I'm flattered to be here nonetheless. Well, Thank I did you. try to get Tristan Riddell on. Yeah, he's he's a squirrely one. He's tough to lock yeah. down. Yeah. He really is. So, um, I mean, I guess <laughs> I shouldn't have said that out loud to you. I'm sorry, man. Oh, it's okay. It's oh, okay. I, I'm just happy to have a chance to talk about <laughs> Batman, especially this film. Yeah, I am. I'm really excited. Uh, this is something that, you know, I cannot honestly not remember if I had seen before. And I don't. I mean, I may have seen bits and pieces of it, maybe, but I don't feel like I'd really sat down and watched the whole thing. And so, you know, diving into this was was honestly just a joy. Um, but uh, before we completely get into everything, just want to remind everybody, uh, you can find 602 Club everywhere as well as Trek FM, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can like Google Play, Apple Podcasts. I mean, we're all over the place. Uh, we're a feature provider there in Apple Podcasts. And if you're over there, hit us up with a star rating and review. Help us grow. Help more people find the show uh, with your review. And if you give us one, I will call you out online and thank you. You can find us on Twitter. At Trek FM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. We have our listeners-only discussion group. It's on Facebook. It's called the Babel Conference, and you can dive into discussion there. Type Babel in the search field, or uh, if you are on our website at Trek.fm, you can hit discussion on any of the mini bars, and that will also bring you over so you can join in the conversation. 
And if you'd like to send us an email, go over to trek.fm slash contact. You can choose the show, choose the 602 Club, and that will come straight to me and any of the hosts on that week. And you can write anything you'd like about the episode or anything uh, else that maybe you'd like to talk about geek fandom-wise. So, John, uh, this is a movie that uh, came out in December of 1993. Christmas Day. Yes, yes. And, you know, I did a little research because I, I was interested in this because I knew that it had come out in the theater. And it's not something that I saw in the theater. Did you? I did. I did. Okay. My okay. Uh, my dear friend, Joey, who I have known since uh, I was 15 years old, uh, we actually, the, the very first conversation we ever bonded over was Batman, the 1989 movie. We were huge fans of it. And we also saw, you know, Batman Returns. I, I liked it better than he did at the time, that sort of thing. But by the time Mask of the Phantasm came out, uh, you know, we were we were very good friends by this point. And we had gotten to be good enough friends that we established a tradition of after we were done with our familial obligations, which were always sort of a chore, meeting up uh, for dinner and a movie uh, on Christmas Day. Because back then... You know, I mean, I feel old now, but back then where we were, that wasn't a thing. Like it, it was a ghost right. town to go out to dinner and uh, and go to the movies. And Batman Mask of the Phantasm, we were like, yeah, sold, done. And we went in, we saw it. I actually remember it snowed uh, that, that Christmas Day, which was odd for the D.C. metro area. We typically didn't get snow growing up on, on Christmas Day. But I remember driving home from the theater and there was actually snow. Um, but you know, all that to say, yes, I had the good privilege of actually seeing this in the movie theater. See, and I, this is one of those places where I just completely missed this coming out uh, at that point. And, and it's too, too bad too, because I would have liked to have seen it. But the interesting thing uh, when I was doing the research, John, and the, and the reason I asked is that, you know, this reminded me a lot of something that we're both familiar with, which is the Clone Wars. Yeah, and that this was not originally planned as a theatrical release. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I and I know that uh, people, I mean, it, it didn't do particularly well um, when it was released. But so, I mean, I remember back then telling people that I had seen the Batman animated movie, you know, in the movie theater, and they're like, "Wait, there was a movie!" Like it, it caught people off guard uh, that it was released. And I think the only reason Joey and I even knew about it is because. You know, we we were, you know, we we didn't have social prospects other than going out to the movies with each other. So, you know, that's what it was. Well, and it and it's interesting that you say that too. You know that that short notice that it was coming out did kind of lead this to be kind of a failure at the box office. But of course, you know, once it came to home viewing, it became a cult classic. And you know, I remember uh, just a, a few weeks ago when this came out on Blu-ray, I posted that I had gotten it and I had a, a few people, you know, uh, contact me back on like Instagram and, and Twitter saying, you know, this is this is still my favorite Batman movie, you know. So it it kind of has that amount of clout with certain fans in, you know, fandom. So, yeah. you know, this isn't uh, anything to sneeze at when we talk about it being, you know, an hour and 20 minute animated Batman movie. And, you know, and that's the thing that, that is one of the things that I always, um, I don't want to get like too ahead of ourselves or anything, but one of the things that every time I revisit this, um, and I do watch it, I mean, I, you know, it's not like every week or anything, but I've watched it frequently enough through the years. One of the things that always amazes me about it is we all get running time stuck in our heads. Uh, I remember 
with the Dark Tower when they said it was an hour and a half long. People said, and only an hour and a half? Oh my gosh, I can't believe. Or Christopher Nolan with Dunkirk says it's an hour and 47 minutes. And people are like, oh my gosh, he usually does three hour movies. What does this mean for the film? This is just lean storytelling at its finest. And it proves that you don't need a lot cluttered onto your film. I would actually like to see more modern films take this approach and say, you know what, let's just go to the bone. What do we need and how can we tell it? I mean, this thing has flashbacks. It has fully developed character arcs for everybody in it, you know. But but a lot of people, I think, would look at, you know, oh, hour and 20 minutes, whatever. It's, you know, what what is that, a TV movie, you know? Well, and I think that you're absolutely right because, you know, the thing for film is what does your film need to tell its story? Does it need three hours? Does it need an hour and a half? You know, what is the proper running time to tell your story succinctly in a way that allows the audience to feel like it makes sense? There's all the connections you need. There's the character development, you know. Sometimes that takes three hours. Sometimes that could only be done in an hour and a half and the movie would be way better for it, you know? And I think having the eye to be able to understand the how long a film needs to be uh, is something that, you know, maybe needs to have um, be revised. And it's something that needs to be revived, you yeah. know, in Hollywood and, and be able to, to, to see what really will make a difference because, um, you know, like I'll, I'll call out, you know, I think Batman v Superman is better as a three hour movie than it is a two and a half hour movie. And that's because of connections that, w- that w- extra time makes without getting into semantics. I agree with you. I think that that is an absolutely true statement that, that I think that film would have been better received. I know it would have been better received by me had that three hour cut come out. I, I, right. I do. I honestly believe that. Um, and you know, and at the same time, like you know, um, I think of uh, we. I just saw the Dark Tower, and I also think that that movie would have benefited from some more expansion mm-hmm. uh, and understanding of the world because of how big you know the Dark Tower universe is, and you know, not necessarily as being a novice, not fully understanding everything that's happening because there's not enough time for them to truly really explain it in a way that one doesn't feel like just boring exposition but also makes me care more you know like sure. so again like it, those are just two examples of where longer happens but I, I think you're absolutely right this is a film in which the running time is absolutely perfect there you don't feel like you need more to the story and also think about the fact think about how different the landscape is with films and this this is something where i think you and i and and there are plenty of people who've had this discussion where I would fully embrace Warner Brothers, Marvel, anybody else having releases that, okay, you can have your connected universe thing, but you could also have your standalone Red Sun or your Gotham by Gaslight or something like that. This is a this is a film released uh, four years, well, three and a half, uh, four and a half years, however long, after, you know, uh, the, the Tim Burton Batman. Totally different origin story for the Joker. Different origin story for Batman, different touchstones, different layout of the landscape, different everything, and fans did not reject it. I mean, it, it, it did flop, you know, for lack of a better word, the box office because the marketing campaign wasn't there. They couldn't generate the interest. But not one fan 
said, oh, well, you're violating what happened over in Tim Burton's Batman. You can't have these two Batmans out in the movie theater. Yes, you can. You can completely do this. And you have two independently good films that totally work. I mean, and if anything, Batman Mask of the Phantasm is better than, I'll go ahead and say, it's better than Batman Returns, better than Batman Forever, better than Batman and Robin. Yeah. So it's better (laughs) than three. I mean, you can get into the debate about versus 1989 Batman and stuff like that, but let's set that one aside. It's better than the other three movies released around it from 92 to 96. And I, I mean, I'm just for me personally, I, I, I would watch this much more than I ever would. Yeah. in 89. So yeah. completely, completely agree. Um, I, I, it's, it's funny that we're, we're talking about this and it, uh, it brings to mind right now that the, the DC universe where you have your TV universe and you have your film universe and we're about to have competing versions of flash. And like, I don't feel like anybody's really throwing a fit anymore, you know? And, and, People were a little upset because at the very beginning, it, and it, nobody could see Grant Gustin not being the Flash. But now, from what I've heard, just listening to fans and on Twitter and everything like that, you know, th- they're kind of being won over by what they're doing in the film with Ezra Miller. They're liking that portrayal, and yeah, it's different. But you know, it 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 really just goes to show. It's like you just have to give things a chance. And this is a fantastic version of Batman, and I don't, it doesn't matter to me whether it connects or anything like that, because it, it's just a great, it's like those miniseries that you get in comics, you know, like you were saying, Red Sun or something like that. Who cares if it's the actual origin story of Superman or Batman or whatever? It just tells a great story for the character, and it places where it doesn't have to worry about continuity. It's kind of like what they're doing with the, Earth One stories where they just come out as graphic novels right now and they have one for Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Teen Titans. They're going to do a Green Lantern one. And it is, it's just allowing the creatives to create different origin right. stories, uh, different ideas. There have some similarities, but it also lets them just play with the characters without having to worry about continuity. And right. I think, you know, that's what's fun is just allowing a creative to be creative. And, you know, the team behind the animated series for Batman definitely knew how to be creative and, you know, giving us kind of a Batman origin story in the forties, which kind of references where Batman started is just a fantastic way to go. And, uh, it is disappointing that more people didn't see it in the theaters, but I absolutely love that it became a cult classic. Yeah, you you know it's it's it, this will sound weird, but it actually reminds me of uh, Austin Powers, because that's another movie with the same friend Joey years later that I saw in the movie theater. And I remember in the movie theater there were not many people, and we walked out and we said, "Man, that's a shame. This was a funny movie. You know, I wish more people would have seen it." And it got this cult following, and then you got the Austin Powers sequels. You know, off of that. I mean, Terminator, uh, the original Terminator is the same way. It developed the cult following. And so I think the surprising thing for me was that the the follow-up, I mean, the strength, this was so strong and it, it developed a following quickly. It's so strange to me that it didn't, uh, wasn't able to leverage that into releasing a subsequent sequel um, because uh, it, it, Sub-Zero was almost as good uh, as this, but it wasn't, it wasn't released in the theater. Like, I, I think that this left them a little gun shy, but I mean, you know, you think about the talent as well 
uh, behind, you know, but behind the screen, the voices of this, I, I mean, they've got Stacy Keach. They've got Dana Delaney, who was, you know, she was she was a name back then. She was a big right. name back then. And, you know, uh, Abe Vigoda's in this for Pete's sake. You know, Fish and uh, and and Sal from The Godfather. I mean, come on. Man. Yeah. Like, what happened? You know, and the thing is, that was kind of a rarity back then. Because I remember Transformers, the movie, there was sort of a splash because they had an all-star ca- voice cast. And this has an all-star voice cast. And this is in the days before. I mean, even the Disney movies back in this era didn't have all-star voice casts really until Aladdin. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You're you're uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, I think the other thing that I like about this too, um, just kind of talking a little bit about the cast, is is the sense that they just pick the right voices for the characters too. You know, um, they obviously kept. Kevin Conroy because he's Batman from the animated series and you don't change you don't just go get another name you, you no. stick with the guy who plays Batman the best you yeah. know um you know Mark Hamill isn't huge at that point you know Star Wars is done yep. you know he's just a voice actor at this point a lot of people have kind of forgotten about him but his Joker is just so utterly perfect you know and and then everybody else that you use like you called out all these great behind the scenes names of, of like, you know, from Godfather, you know, Dana Delaney for her popularity, um, which, uh, would also lead to her becoming Lois Lane in Superman, the animated series, which Mm -hmm. is pretty cool. So, you know, I, I think it just goes to show that when it comes to voice acting, you don't have to have a big name if you just get the right voice. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they lucked out. And I mean, you know, I, I'm sitting here geeking out over Abe Vigoda's name, but how many people, when you say Abe Vigoda, who? You know, but I, I think there is maybe a little bit of, um, you know, uh, <laughs> blinders on uh, in my case, but Hamill especially, his Joker is, I mean, as much as everybody loves to heap praise on Conroy justly for his portrayal of Bruce Wayne and Batman. You struggle to think of this Joker existing without Hamill's voice work. It, what changes about him without Hamill behind there? And I remember it was, it was a big thing because it was sort of a coming out party because he had been sort of under the radar even with the series. People didn't really know. And I remember they did a behind-the-scenes making-of thing that, that aired on cable or something like that where they showed him in the studio. And he's a very physical actor when he's a voice actor. And so he's doing the faces and the moves and stuff like that. And everybody like that, that, that brought a lot of uh, cachet to it um, as it were. But you know, this, this is a, I think what, what makes mask of the phantasm, what makes the voice work so unique is when I, when I go back, when I see Heath Ledger's Joker, I'm without even realizing it, I can fall into thinking about it from the lens of Hamill's Joker and I think that Ledger's Joker mm-hmm. has a lot more yeah. in common with Hamill's Joker than, you know, any other portrayal that I've seen or heard. Um, in the fact that this Joker in this film, it, granted, it's a PG film, but there's just as much menace about him. He's doing the giggles and everything, but he's got all of these hot ones. And yeah, it, you know, it's, it's very cartoony, overblown and everything, but he's got a real menacing bent to him. Like when he loses his cool, they they do this neat thing where the whole screen behind him turns red, or when he um, 
you know, at, at the at the big climactic confrontation, his laugh, you know, he just starts laughing. And what what occurred to me as I was watching it this time, what was so unique about the characterizations, and I think what makes it uh, resonate, is Batman and Joker have always been flip sides of the same coin. And what I what I think about it in term, what I thought about it in terms of with this viewing, was these are both characters who have stared into the abyss. You stare long enough into the abyss, it looks back at you. Batman, as a result, has become very brooding and dark and quiet. And the Joker has snapped because he's looked into this this deep abyss and it has broken him in a large way. Mm, and I yeah. think that that I, I, and the, and again, this is this is an hour and 20 minute cartoon and it's got that type of layer inside of it. It, it, it It's really kind of mind blowing. I really like you pointing out the, the ways in which like somebody like Ledger, you know, picked up on on pieces of this Joker. And I think you're absolutely right. The thing about the Joker in the animated series and, and what he does here is that for all of his giggling, he is just brutal. You know, and and he is very scary. You know, yeah. He's not a villain to be trifled with. He isn't just a jokester. You know, he he really is has no compulsions about killing people. Like that's that doesn't bother him at all. In fact, he finds it kind of funny. You know, yeah. uh, he enjoys just creating chaos, and that's exactly what he he gets called on to do in this movie. And I think that's, I mean, it, it's interesting the way that too that they work him into the story, and I, I feel like it works, you know, really well. Like, well, there's only one person who can take on the Batman, and that's Joker. So we'll just call it the Joker, and everything goes awry once that happens. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, to speak to your point about you know being a dangerous type of guy. He does, in fact, and I'm going to try to keep this as if somebody hasn't seen it and they're still listening, keep it as lean as possible. But he kills somebody with a specific thought that because people keep mistaking Phantasm for Batman, he kills a person just to lure who he hopes is Batman into a trap. Like that is that is really like over the line demented type of stuff. And it there there is that menace to it and it's um it's just it's it's so fascinating that this many years later that it still proves to be such a tricky proposition to adapt batman and the joker to the screen and one of the recognized most successful versions of it was more than 20 years ago and you really realize what lightning in a bottle it is to get it right, to to nail it like that. Yeah, because uh, I mean, just to to name a place where it didn't work was the Killing Joke that just came out, uh, and and it just the way that they told the story there, it, it just did not work Same, on yeah on screen. It just doesn't. Yeah, well, and and it's the and it's the beloved Batman and the beloved Joker from this reprising their voice roles, but because they didn't. And you know what, though? That's the thing. There are a lot of touchstones in this specific film lifted from year one, lifted from year two, uh, even lifted from Dark Knight uh, Returns. Um, And for some reason, Batman always winds up at a construction site fighting with the cops. I don't know. That's a recurring theme in his life. That's he needs to look deep inside himself. He just just needs to stay away from construction sites is really what it is. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, there are those touchstones and that. What is what can be? I guess uh, I, I mean it's it it's an overwrought word for what I'm trying to say. But what can be distressing about these adaptations is 
this, just in the same vein as Nolan, is an example of the right way to adapt a character where there is nothing that is transliterated from the page to the screen. You cited the killing joke, and the killing joke, they basically just took it and they basically made a motion co- uh, comic out of it. And except for the, the, the 20 minutes they tacked on at the beginning. But there are these other adaptations where it's much more, okay, well, we're going to take it and we're doing a book adaptation. Whereas this is a quote-unquote adaptation, but it's a spiritual adaptation of things that make the characters work. Just like 89's Batman was. Just like Nolan's Batman was. They are borrowing. And if you know what to look for, you know, if you know Long Halloween, you, okay, I, I recognize right. that version of Harvey Dent, and I recognize that version of this. But this is in that school. And I, I think that's honestly what makes for the best, you know, films where you just see pieces of the characters from different places. And, and you know, well, uh, I think it's one of the things I liked about the the DC universe so far in the films with what they did with Superman and how they brought in Batman and Wonder Woman. It's like there are pieces of all these things. Like I just read um, the, the first omnibus of uh, George Perez's work for Wonder Woman. So much of that is sprinkled in throughout uh, the Wonder Woman film. But so is the Nude 52 origin and so a bunch of other things that I've read about Wonder Woman. And they're all just kind of put together to make this Wonder Woman that you see on screen. She's just a culmination of all this stuff. The same thing with, I think, you know, Superman and, and Batman and that, that universe. And so uh, it's it's like it works so much better when you kind of create your own version of the character. Then, And I feel yeah. like that's kind of what they do in this film. And, and kind of diving into... This idea that the the movie has two parts, the past and the present. And it starts in the present, but I wanted to talk about it with the past first because I think it's one of the most interesting parts of the movie because really it's they're telling this the origin of Batman in a way that you haven't seen before, I think, and that it doesn't involve seeing his parents die. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I... The the really interesting thing about this uh, this version of Batman is it shows him willing to give up the life for love, basically to say, you know, th- yeah, to be happy. There is another choice here, and I think that it makes him all the more tragic because he makes that decision. The decision. I mean, there's a part of us every time we watch Batman's origin story. There's a part of us that will always want him not to do this to himself. I mean, it's the whole thing that Michael Caine voices in uh, Alfred in uh, in Dark Knight Rises, where he's like, I, I hoped you stayed away. I didn't want you to come back. I wanted you to go off and be happy. I didn't want you doing this with the rest of your life. And you see him in this one willing to do it, and then it's taken away from him, and it makes him even more tragic because it adds on this whole other layer of... He, uh, you can understand why he feels trapped by destiny, like he has no other choice because he tried and life took it away from him. So I can understand somebody feeling this sort of despair where it's like, well, this is the only choice I have. This is the only choice that the universe is going to give me. I might as well embrace it. And it is, it is really beautiful because, you know, what happens is, is that he meets Andrea Beaumont and, 
you know, she has a parent that's died. He has parents that have died. They actually meet at the, the cemetery. And they kind of start this flirtation, and it just becomes and it blossoms into an actual relationship. But at the same time, Bruce has started his road to becoming Batman, um, you know, being the man in the, the ski mask and all black, you know, trying to stop criminals and all of that kind of stuff. And he keeps kind of like butting up against the the promise that he made to his parents. Uh, and it's almost like this idea of like predestination that he can't get away from, from being Batman. And the way that they really play with that whole idea of like, is it going to be okay for him to be happy? Is it okay for him to like, and even I, I even love I, the, the scene where he's begging, you know, his parents' gravestone. Is, isn't it okay for me to be happy? I, I didn't plan on this. I'm sorry. I didn't see this coming. He didn't ever see himself ever being happy again. And what I love that this movie does is it shows Batman not being so cold that he can't recognize happiness when he sees it and not willing to give up the mantle if happiness will come to him, which is the thing that I think I loved so much of what Chris Nolan picked up in his Dark Knight trilogy, that he found that there would there could be happiness at the end and he was willing to let Batman go to, to find happiness for himself, to, to, to be whole again. And this movie does that in 120 minutes and it's so great to see that, that possibility for Batman because again like you said that's not something you generally see um, or like say the DCU now you see a Batman who has had that idea completely beaten out of him and there's just nothing left but the cold hard truth of like that's this is who I am like, I, and there's no other yeah. choice yeah and and I think I think that that is uh, that is something that is important to make Batman relatable and successful as a character is to make him human. Yes. And you know, I, I, that's not, that's not, I'm not doing like a backhanded thing against, against Batman. That, that's not, it's not the intent there, but I think that's why, again, that, you know, this is such a successful Batman is because he is willing to be human, but you know, even in that past showing that there was somebody else who had pain, like it's, it's interesting because it reminds you and reminds the character, reminds Bruce that there are other people who are hurting and they're dealing with it differently than you are. And what do you do with that? You know, he's walking along tortured by this and she's lost her mother. She, you know, and, and eventually her father, you know, very, you know, tragically as, as any loss of a parent really is. But he sees somebody processing grief differently than he does. And I think that that is also an interesting thing in and of itself, because a lot of times with any Batman story, it's, it's presented almost as if this is the only way a person could possibly handle grief like this. And instead, you know, he sees that this is an option that, that this is a choice. Right. And of course it plays into the present when he sees a mirror of his choice. Well, and, and the beauty of it, too, is that in that same scene where he's, like, in the rain crying at his parents, you know, headstone, you know, she comes to him and says, maybe it's, maybe, 
maybe it is okay. Maybe maybe they sent me to you. And, uh, you know, um, and at that point, it, it it almost feels like for him, I think, as the character, uh, that he sees like maybe I could be happy and I could do this too. You know, like I, I don't feel like he feels like he has to completely give up being Batman, but it's like it, he definitely, it, at least at that point, he feels okay with, you know, he goes and proposes to her and the only thing that gets in the way is her father leaving on business because her father's been in business with some really bad people and gotten them into a lot of trouble and they leave for Europe and that's the last time that he sees her uh, with the Dear John letter that he gets. Uh, I'm sorry, the Dear Batman letter (laughs) that he gets. Well, you know... it's interesting to me too because you mentioned the father and you know he's he's involved with uns, unsavory people and this is something that sort of returns is well Batman returns is there's always an organized crime element that Batman is up against and do you think that that might have anything to do with almost a um people being uncomfortable with him going up against individual criminals i mean obviously he has to in the beginning but there's always this effort, and it's here too, to tie Batman into a fight against organized crime. Whether it's whether it's the mob or Penguin's circus gang uh, or the League of Shadows, there's always an organization that he's going up against. And it's very interesting to me because this is one of the one of the times where it ties in best, where where it really works best. Like 89's Batman, there's a mob element, but it it feels a little anachronistic with what you're you're going for. Um, and then you know the, the Penguin Circus gang and, and stuff like that. But this is so organically a part of the plot because it's not just him going against the mob again. It's that the mob specifically takes something away from him that is very uh you, you know unique and special. And so I just I just think that it's it's interesting because there there seems more an effort to make this a personal uh, sort of situation for Batman and the mob than just you're the mob and therefore you must go away. Right, because there is a point in the movie too in the present where they talk about how Batman's never really come after us, you know, like he's always kind of left us alone and right. uh, which is an interesting thing. And the moment that this phantasm shows up in the present and they think it really is Batman trying to like pick them off one by one. They're completely shocked because this isn't how Batman's worked before. Right. Well, and, he, he hasn't killed them. He's he right. He hasn't killed any of them capture. Yeah. Catch and release. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It, it just creates a, a very nice, flow and and i remember you know just kind of seeing this for the first time really the whole when it started doing the flashbacks i was like oh whoa that's that's so cool you know uh because i didn't really expect that and the way in which the two stories intertwine with each other i thought was really well done because when we do get to the present and the phantasm is making batman look bad by killing the mobsters and wearing a costume that makes them look enough like Batman, uh, so that the, of course, the media uh, just 
plays it off. Oh, it's Batman, you know, and so do so do all the you know the council members and everything. And the only one who's standing up for him is Gordon at that point. He's like, Batman does not kill. You know? Yes, uh, I, and I, you know what, and I, I, I'm glad you point that out because I love the scene where they're talking about you got to go after Batman, and Gordon just storms out. He's like, you want to go after him? You take him out. And like, it's so. Gordon has a, a pretty small part in this Batman film and but it is it's very impactful and it's very meaningful because he's the guy who w- won't give up on you know it's the person who sticks to believing in in somebody even when you know the crowd turns against them he's the he's the one that says no, I know that this isn't the case. You guys don't have all of the pieces. Something's not right here, and I'm not doing that. I'm not. I'm not taking part in this. And it's, it, it's even like a subtle thing about how quickly, you know, the crowd can turn against you when they mm-hmm. think you've done something. Absolutely. Uh, and and what it, what it really boiled down to for me was that you could tell in the present that Batman and Bruce had done such a great job of cultivating that relationship with Gordon uh, and giving Gordon enough reason to trust Batman so that when something like this happens, Gordon immediately was like, I smell something fishy. You know, this this doesn't fly with what we know of this this person. And it doesn't. I mean, it, it, it's also one of the things that I, I really like ab- about the movie is it was Batman's trying to figure out this mystery too because... Yeah. You know, and this is one of the few places I feel like Batman gets to do some detective work in Batman movies. Like he actually gets to play a detective uh, as he's going to people's homes, breaking in, looking through files. Yeah. You know, uh, taking uh, fi- fi- when he finds the picture and he connects. You know, uh, Andrea's father to you know these these mob bosses and everything and remembering back the connection then from the past. And like, he's putting all these pieces together and it's like, Oh, you're going to see Batman do what he's really known for, which is being the world's greatest detective. Yeah. And I think you also, uh, you know, just to address one last thing from, you know, from like the, the past storyline is I think that something that can be a rarity, uh, unfortunately in Batman films is, uh, a fully developed female character. Mm-hmm. It, it's become more of a focus in recent times, but I think it's very noteworthy with Mask of the Phantasm that 24 years before we're having these conversations about, you know, representation and showing, uh, you know, women in, you know, in, in more capable light in superhero films, this came out and there was no fanfare about it. It was just done. And nobody rejected it. Nobody pushed back against it. Nobody said, oh, this is cause. It's, everybody just said, oh, good. Hey, great Batman movie. And Andrea is a really interesting character. You know, th- there was no, there was nothing. Nobody batted an eye. Right. Well, and, it, and, it's, and it's something that's so great because in the past and in the present, she's a fantastic character. And, and she has a whole arc as well. And again, in the end, she becomes that mirror for Batman, like, how you take your life and what choices you make because of what's happened to you and because of what's happened to her spoiler alert she's the phantasm because all of these mobsters are responsible for the death of her father and she's had enough and something yeah 
kind of breaks inside of her to which she's willing to go after them and, and, and make it final that they're dead, whereas somebody like Bruce has has had to suppress and has honed that skill of, I'm not here to bring down the hammer. I'm not here to be justice or get revenge. I'm here to help bring justice to people who might not have gotten justice otherwise. Yeah, I mean... It's always an interesting thing to throw Batman up against essentially what is the Punisher, right? What separates the two of you? Is it a right. simple, is it as simple as, you know, who you are or, or environment or discipline or what have you? And I think it's it's a very worthwhile question to ponder specifically because you know, Batman doesn't go after revenge, but he's still breaking the law. He's still moving outside the bounds of the law to get what we would consider justice. So what makes us okay with that versus what's okay with what uh, Andrea is doing? And are they both understandable? And do they both, you know, can, can they coexist? Yes, no, that, that sort of thing. I think it's, it, it's a great, uh, you know, conversation to have and, uh, you know, I know where I fall, uh, you know, on the discussion and everything, but, you know, you, you have this confrontation between them where Batman insists, you know, no, it's, it's not about that for me. It's not about revenge. It's not about killing. It's not about getting the score even. It's about justice, stopping these people from doing terrible things. And you see that reiterated when the Joker does come into play and Batman's fighting him uh, instead of her. She's going to kill the Joker and he's going to stop, you know, to, to get involved, to tell her to stop and all of those sorts of things. And the thing is, he he doesn't want to kill the Joker. But when a certain when, when it comes to that point where it looks like there's no choice and the Joker says, you fool, you'll kill us both. Batman says whatever it takes. He basically makes it very clear, this is your choice, Joker. I'm just going to stop you. If that means we both die, then we both die. But I'm not going to, by my act, just kill you outright. And I think that even, because you have the whole conversation about revenge versus justice versus vigilantism, and then is that what makes Batman different? Is that he's simply meeting the meeting with necessary force sort of thing you know like he's willing to wipe himself out if it's what's necessary to keep the larger badness from happening right and i think that on the question that kind of question you know revenge justice all that kind of stuff which is such a i mean it's so perfect for the character of batman to be able to have those discussions and this film does such a great job of bringing them up with the phantasm thrown in there uh, and it being Andrea, and so you're having to ask all these questions because she's mirroring Batman and everything. Uh, I think the thing it becomes is that Batman is is willing to sacrifice his life to save others, even if that means his own life is taken, and it, if that's what it means to stop the villain. And the villain might die too, but that was their choice. And so, but in the end, it's that self-sacrificial key, you know, uh, and and that's what sets him apart from somebody like Phantasm or the Joker or, you know, anybody he's trying to stop is because he, the reason he's doing this is to benefit others. 
uh, not necessarily yep. just for you know his own benefit. And like you said, being willing to make that ultimate sacrifice, uh, if that's what it takes, you know that that's a key component to, to to putting him on more the light side than the dark side, if we want to put it that way. Yeah, and and the Joker even has a laugh at the expense of that at the end. Although you you again you know it's it's a continuing conversation, but the Joker throws his hands up. He's like, okay, I give up. You know, that that's how this works. You know, I, I give up. You get to take me in. And it's her that's like, nope, not good enough. And like, you know, there's this beat where he's like, no, 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 that, that, that's that's not how this works. Like we do this. This is this is a thing. And I also, you know, as as weird and as as, uh, uh, you know, funny as this might sound, one of the things that I really enjoy most about this film is that the Joker takes damage. He gets a tooth knocked out. And right. I don't know why. But it's always one of those things where it's like you're so used to seeing the Joker smile untouched. And then to have to simply make the choice to have him with his iconic Joker smile with a missing tooth. I I just think it's it's I, I know that's a little bit of a detour, but it's like it's in that scene when he's sitting there and his tooth is missing. It's just it's I think it's such a fun little add on to everything. Well, this is the interesting thing too. I wanted, I wanted to ask you something because it really bothered my wife when we watched this, and she's like, "How does the phantasm? How does that work? Like, I don't understand. Like, what?" And they don't really explain it in the movie whatsoever. They they kind of make some references. Just it's you know some kind of techno babble, basically. Well, uh, yeah, know. I mean, you know, the mist has certain properties or whatever like that, but right. But she was just really bothered by that, and I thought it was funny because it is something that we've gotten so used to in our comic book storytelling these days. And I blame Marvel for this, is that they have yeah. made everything a technology to explain how something works, and and whereas, especially if you're reading the, the older comic books, it's just a thing that would happen, and you didn't need it explained yes. that a character could appear and disappear like this. It, it wasn't, that's that's not where we are. And again, I, bl- I really do, I blame Marvel for making everything some sort of scientific explanation. I mean, even Thor is not even a god. He's just some alien with powers. I, I won't lay all of the blame squarely at Marvel's feet. I think they're the worst offender in, in current times. But I think that what it is, is it, it, I think that, you know, I don't regard... 24 years ago was too long a time ago, but that's just because that's not how long I've been, you know, I've been on the earth longer than that. But in that time, I remember I can project myself backwards and remember for me, it's like the magician's tricks. There were always people that wanted to Mm -hmm. know how the magician did the trick. I never did. The magician does the trick. Oh, how did the magician do the trick? Well, sometimes I want to know, and sometimes, wow, that's neat. I don't want to know. I want to preserve that. I don't need to noodle through. And I think that that the mindset and the development of that in movies is, is, is parallel. But I definitely also think that, you know, I, I do agree with you that Marvel movies have sapped some of the magic out of it. Mm-hmm. at the expense of being quote-unquote believable and mask of the phantasm and movies like that and the thing is you know you got to lay a little bit of blame on nolan as well who 
strictly adhered to, you know, realism with a twist. Everything had to be believable because he wanted to set it in the real world. And that's fine, but that's his choice and it doesn't need to apply to every choice. Absolutely. And there's still a little bit of magic to it anyway, because, you know, I mean, we could all make the joke to the end of time is where does Batman get like I would love to do a comic book series where all it is is it's all of the moments where Batman quote unquote disappears and you find out that he's right. just like hiding behind a trash can until the people leave <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Yes, absolutely. No, I think you're you're so right in calling that out because, again, that was Nolan's choice. Like he did that on purpose because that was the point of his films like that. That's what he wanted to do. And. That's that was the kind of thing where like uh, I take the DC TV universe. It started off with Arrow where it was just grounded series, right? And it's slowly grown into a place that has, you know, a multiverse and speedsters and talking gorillas and all this stuff in the, the all the same universe. But you started off specifically in a very grounded, gritty, real type of place. And, you know, you have you have to make all of these decisions when you're you're creating any kind of comic book character or universe or anything like that. And whatever your choice is, that's your choice, and, and that's fine. This is just a, a representation of a time in which we didn't really even ask those questions, right? Exa- exa- well, yeah. Look at um, 1978 Superman. What gives you your powers? The sun. Okay, and then you flash forward. And it's, and again, this this isn't like a backhanded thing or anything like that, but like now you have to build the movie with, well, it's the atmosphere combined with the radiation from your yellow sun if it acts on your cells. No, it, you know what? Honestly, it's enough. Why am I like this? The sun. Gotcha. Cool. You know, or, or oh, it's the ultraviolet light from the sun that kills vampires. No, you know what? Just say the sun. We're good. It, it works. Yeah. I, this is... I guess I, gosh, this is one of those things where we could kind of just keep picking apart all this stuff. And and the main reason for wanting to do this was just kind of celebrate it coming out on Blu-ray and and the fact that it looks beautiful and and get a chance to talk about, I think, uh, just a phenomenal Batman experience that you can have. I mean, it's probably the best Batman experience you can have in an hour and 20 minutes. Easy, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, John, if you if you had to put a rating on this, uh, what do you think you would rate it? You know, it's tough because I want to give it uh, five batarangs, um, but then I, you know, I walk into the territory of Up would have had five batarangs. You know, the the Pixar movie Up. So, if I'm going on the same scale, this ends up with four and a half because there are a couple of uh, moments where the foot might have been on the pedal a little bit too long or something like that. But it, it's definitely in the four and a half to five range. And, uh, you know, I, I think that what pushes it that extra, you know, that extra mile, we didn't even get a chance to talk about this, but just before we go, is Shirley Walker's score is fantastic. Um, but yeah, th- this is in the four and a half to five range. What about you? I'm uh I'm actually right there with you. I, I think this is uh four and a half, five I mean it's just somewhere in that that area 
bat caves. We're not sure how big the bat cave is. That, that's, I mean, you know, it, it's either a four yeah. and a half uh, or a five. We're not, we're not sure. Hundred thousand square feet. We don't right. really know. Um, but no, I, I actually the score. It honestly reminded me a lot of the Hunt for October kind of sound yeah. that okay. almost like Russian vocal, like yeah. gothicness to it. Like it really, it, there's something about it. It's really cool. Uh, if you get a chance, pick up the score somewhere because I've been listening to it uh, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, it has all the hallmarks of the great uh, animated series type scores and uh, a more, I don't know, just it sounds <laughs> operatic is really what it is. And it even has a cheesy... Uh, tack on love song over the credits, which oh, yes. is which is fantastic. It, it, uh, well, <laughs> I don't know about that. fantastic, but it's there. So <laughs> maybe that's absolutely. what keeps it from five. Is the end credits. <laughs> there you go? There you go. <laughs> fantastic getting to talk about this, John. I'm really, I just, it, it's it's so fun to just be able to sit down and talk about something like this, where you know there's really not a lot to critique. Uh, in the sense of like what we don't like, but it, it's it's really a joy of talking about what they do well and why they do it well. And, you know, I, I think this is one of those hallmarks where you can say, look to this to find a way to tell character, arc, story, structure, all of those kind of things in a, an hour and 20 minutes and, and find out what they did there and bring that to anything you do. Big screen, little screen, whatever, because it really does work here. Really glad we got a chance to talk about it. Um, thank you to associate producers here, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. They make this possible through their support through Patreon uh, for the 602 Club and the entire network. And this is a huge network. We have so much going on. We've got brand new shows popping up, especially with Star Trek Discovery coming out. Uh, it takes a lot to run this network. It is very expensive, and we definitely need the support of the listeners because if you notice, this is also ad-free. Uh, it's it's all great content. We try to make it sound as good as possible, and it all takes so much work. So if you like what we do, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can see how you can be a part of the team. We have so many different ways that we like to give back to you on that with the patrons roundtable and so much more. So again, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can see what you can do to help this network keep staying on the air. Now, John, uh, before we do get out of the 602 Club, uh, by the way, glad to have you back. Um, let everybody know where they can find you. I mean, you are just a podcaster about town with all you're doing, so uh, let everybody know where they can catch up with you online. Well, I'm, I'm always pleased to be here, Matt. You know that. And uh, you can find me. I'm Kessel Junkie. That's my name uh, out there on the social networks. Uh, you can find me right here on the Trek FM Network co-hosting Stage 9 with Mike Schindler. Uh, speaking of Mike Schindler, I'm over on the Nerd Party Network, co-hosting Great Shot Kid. Uh, Nerd Party Network, I'm right there with you, Matt. Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast where we talk about as much as we love Batman, I think Star Wars uh, that might be even a little bit bigger of a love of ours. So we, you know, we talk about that on a weekly basis. And uh, free floating on No Network, I am uh, on Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. And you could find me if you'd like to check up with me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm on Instagram with that same name. I'm here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. 
I am on the Nerd Party Network with John with aggressive negotiations, as he said, but also doing owl posts with Drea Kaufman talking through each and every chapter of Harry Potter. So check that out. And then on the To Be the Church Network, you can find me doing cinema stories where we talk about film through the lens of faith. Have a blast doing that show. In fact, just a and talk about Batman on that show with Batman v Superman. So make sure you check all the shows that we've done so far. And you can find those, my shows or John shows, anywhere you can get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear?